nuclear fusion energy is gaining more and more momentum worldwide with more startups and companies investing in its technology as well as it being at the COP26 World Summit for the first time in 2021. But why? So in order to understand the big picture, we are fortunate to be able to speak with passionate people on this episode who are highly experienced about fusion energy. First, we will be speaking with Sabina Griffith from ITER Communications, who was part of the first team to represent ITER at COP26 in Glasgow. And finally, with Tim Luce, the chief scientist at ITER. We're going to go and speak to them now. Hello, you're listening to All About Eater on the World Radio Paris. I'm your host, Crudy, and I'll be discovering what the Eater Project and Fusion Energy are all about. Eater is one of the most ambitious energy projects ever attempted. It is here in the south of France that a coalition of 35 nations is collaborating to build the largest and most powerful device to prove the scientific and technological feasibility of fusion power. Come and join me in this audio journey. Finally, this year, COP26 Climate Summit in Glasgow, Fusion Energy was able to be present on stage and take part in dialogue with everybody present there. We will be speaking with Sabina Griffith, who represented ITER as well as the nuclear fusion community over there, and we'll be asking her the key takeaways from her experience. Hi again, Sabina. Thank you for having us here. You had newly introduced us to ITER's worksite in episode one with a very insightful tour. This time, however, we'd like you to give us a tour of your work and experience at COP26. Can you please reintroduce yourself to our listeners? Since when have you been with ITER? Hi, welcome back, Kruti and Will. Um, pleased to see you again. And yeah, uh, it's been um, some interesting months since we recorded our first episode, a lot has happened here. And coming back to your question, so let me introduce you myself quickly again. Um, I'm Sabina, working uh, in ITER Communications, and I've been here for 15 crazy years, <laughs> almost since the very beginning of the ITER project. And yeah, and again, um, a lot has happened since those days. It's been a real roller coaster ride, and um, we are sitting here in my office and we are looking out of a big window screen and we see the eater facility coming out of the ground. It's 75% done now. The last construction works are being performed inside the assembly hall. The eater tokamak, the eater machine is taking shape fast, very fast now. So yeah, that's... Um, you see me... And you've seen that since girl. the beginning. You've yeah. seen it yeah. when it was It's nothing. amazing. It's amazing. Sometimes we forget what we do here, you know, uh, what this undertaking means, either. But um, only last Friday we had a film crew here, a documentary filmer from Italy, and walking around and describing to him and seeing it again. And then seeing the amazement in the eyes of our visitors that tells you a lot, you know, because it's like... For everybody who works on a project day in, day, uh, day out, you sometimes tend to forget, you know, but then it's all back. And 
it's all back here this morning talking to you and yeah uh, you asked me about the cop experience um yes that was a very amazing experience we have been struggling to get a foot into the cop door the cop is the big climate change conference uh, which took place in glasgow in scotland this year um and we have attended uh, a few cops before um and this year we knew it would be crucial to hold up the fusion flag because climate change and saving the climate is on the top agenda of uh, many governments and the world and the youth as we know fridays for future so um we prepared ourselves well we have very good um, connections we have very good friends in the un head offices they fully support uh, fusion and eater but um, we don't know why but um, just until the end of summer all the uh, proposals from the nuclear industry or nuclear projects may they be fission or fusion were rejected by the uh, COP organizers. So that came as a big surprise for us. So neither the big fission industry, you know, um, um, got their proposal through, uh, nor did we. Okay. So um, the media got hold of that, and there were some um, big media articles in international newspapers. And uh, so something then changed and we still don't know what changed and who intervened must have been somebody very high up in the UK government uh, because the UK government was the host of the COP this year and so suddenly the doors opened and we were given some slots to speak up and we used them slo uh, those slots and um, so the first week of COP we had a uh, uh, a uh, 30-minute show in the Action Hub, which was center stage, and the Blue Zone, which is the zone where the COP negotiations take place. If I can just cut you before that, um, just to give an idea for the view uh, for the listeners, what exactly is COP? And then perhaps we can go back to what is it that you talked okay, about? Okay, sure. Um, um, the COP uh, is the abbreviation of Conference of the Parties which is the big UN, United Nations Climate um, Conference. Conference, you know, all the governments uh, come together there in person and they uh, discuss the urgent need, needs for fighting climate change. Uh, <clears throat> it didn't take place last year, so we knew that there would be a big gold rush happening this year because the urgency uh, is immediate, you know, sort of imminent. Sorry, it's immediate and imminent. So, um, yeah, and we were then very, very happy uh, to get this, these slots. So, again, first week we had a stage show in the Action Hub, and then um, the second week we, had, uh, we participated to a panel. And, um, yeah, we... We discussed and we thought how could, in which way could we hold up the fusion flag, you know, because there are so many activities ongoing. There are so many panels, speeches, presentations, you know, and so how could we get the attention of the people there? And 
So we are eater. We are the big elephant in the fusion community. But um, I decided that uh, to get the attention, we the fusion world fusion community, we would have to speak up with one voice. So I contacted our colleagues in China, in Japan, in Russia, in the United States, in Europe. Uh, and I said, well, I want us all to be on stage together, you know, and really tell the world that fusion is not just happening in some labs out there, but it's really happening on the big industrial scale right now, and it's it's world-spanning um, endeavor, yeah, and it's really taking shape. So all these um, projects from around the world, they produce little one-minute videos showing what is the state of the art, you know, where are we at, And they presented that. So we had a world tour going around. And um, we even had the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is overseeing all these worldwide um, activities. And they have a beautiful world map, you know, uh, with all these little lights flashing uh, for all the fusion labs and uh, no longer labs. You know, these are industrial labs by now, sort of fla flaring up. So that was quite impressive. We only had 30 minutes, uh, and when they turned off the microphones and turned off the lights, there were still a lot of people queuing up in front of the mics, you know, with more questions. And so we gave um, radio and TV interviews afterwards, and the interest is there, and it was still triggering in long after this presentation. So you really showed your strength in numbers. Yeah. So, um, and I think they understood that it is <coughs> it is happening. Unfortunately, we still don't have the product in the shelf yet, right? So, but they understand that we are about to deliver, you know, so it's it's converging. And what was the general reaction f from all the questions? What What is it that you felt people wanted to know or? Confidence. Confidence that we are developing Uh, a clean new source of energy, which, which will certainly be there when society needs it. We need new and safe and clean energy now. So we all know that renewables will have to fill that gap. You know, that is very, very important to develop. But um, we also know that we need a sort of baseload energy to replace the coal and the oil. You know, so And this is where fusion... Um, It still keeps being a big promise, you know, but it's more than a promise because we showed them um, videos from ITER, from the ITER worksite, which is really industrial scale, the size of the components, the size of our cooling water. So, and that involves big industry. So, it is taking shape. We will deliver. Right. And then the second uh, week, uh, we had another panel with our director general, uh, Bernard Bigot and representatives from other fusion organizations and also NGOs. There was Sibylle Günther from the German Max Planck Institute. There are also uh, world leaders in developing fusion energy. You know, And they were also talking about um, ITER being a public initiative, you know, but what about private-public um, partnerships? This is a, um, a model that is coming up more and more. Uh, so we see a lot of private money going into fusion right now, private investments. What does that mean? You know, will this accelerate fusion developments? And 
So it was also a very, very fruitful, interesting debates, again, with a lot of feedback. And the feedback is still continuing to, to come in. You know, we see a lot of media interest uh, more than we already had before. More than before, definitely. I think now that we are here on the eater side and what you just said is that we can see that it's almost 75% well, it's being 75% built, correct? Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, there's a special control room that perhaps you can give us access to. Is that possible? Absolutely. So we can go there and I will show you uh, what it looks like now. It's un still under construction. But very shortly, in probably one or two years from now, you know, there will be tons of big screens in there with people from all around the world because ITER is an international uh, hub. So uh, we will open this up to the world. People will sit in there. Um, personally, or Meaning public people? Meaning visitors? No, or scientists. Scientists, so, no, so okay. It's an international science hub. So, But uh, it will also be accessible remotely. So people from China, Japan, you know, sort of... Canada, uh, United States, they will be able to sort of run tests in the ITER Tokamak machine, you know, so, and we will exploit this machine to its very, very uh, limits, I can assure you. So, and it's exciting because now it's only a few years away, you know, we have waited for ITER to to be built and to take shape for so long. And now we are very close to the finishing line, you know, and we are very excited. But let's go there, let's take a closer look. So for the time being, ITER is still under construction. It's a construction project, but very soon it will be operational and become a huge international science hub, you know, with scientists from all around the world participating in experiments, you know, taking our beautiful machine to its limits, you know, and um, yeah, so, and the input for all this was done by the ITER science division, so they defined their needs, they, their technical specifications, and yeah, ITER is now being built according to these standards, and yeah, in a few years from now, um, we will start the machine and then this ITER control room will become very busy, I bet. And uh, yeah, and it's the science and operations division that is in charge of all that. So when you talked about the control room, it means what is it exactly that they will do inside? Um, there will be all the steering uh, technology, there will be huge screens, all the diagnostics and Kodak, this is all the um, signals that the machine will send, you know, for temperature, plasma, stability, vacuum, so everything. You know, you can imagine ITER is like a patient on intensive care. It's a prototype research reactor. So, and there will be a lot of cables, a lot of measurements hanging uh, onto that, uh, that patient. And so all this is coming together in there in the control room, you know, and there will be people in charge of operating the machine. Um, I think they are called, they are not called pilots, but um, anyhow, so um, 
Yeah, it's all coming together in there and they will have to digest all the data that is coming in. You know, most of the data is, of course, stored, you know, in huge data storages, but they need to also re respond to the signals within fractures of seconds, you know, just to sort of keep the plasma burning in there, keep it under control, you know, and inject the fuels, you know, control the vacuum stability and all that. Yeah. So basically, as you said, if ITER, if the tokamak machine especially is the patient um, in ICU and all the people here are doctors, basically, they're the ones because they cannot go inside the body to help cure the, the body or help it, they're going to be doing it from this control room. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Sabina, for bringing us here and really showing us how it's all coming together. Yes, uh, and looking at what is going on in there really reminds us every day about the importance of our undertaking. And with this, I would like to introduce you to your last interview partner for this mini-series, which is uh, Tim Luce, our head of uh, science and um, operations division. And he is the best person to really summarize why we do what we do here at ITER. Come with me. Hello, uh, we are very happy to be here with you, Mr. Tim Luce. Um, as the chief scientist here at ITER, I would like to first ask you, can you please break down your role here? Because your job seems extremely complex. Okay, well, it Chief scientist is a role that I play. My formal position is actually the head of science and operations. And so I play the role of the customer basically for the ongoing construction project. We take everything that's built, we make it work, uh, we assure that it's fit for purpose, but also we represent the members uh, scientific institutions so that the research objectives that have been set forth for the project are accomplished by what's being built. So basically we are looking at everything that comes through the construction side. Uh, we also add controls on top of it. This is part of the department uh, remit. And then we also represent the project outside in terms of getting physics uh, research and development done for the ETER research plan. We're also responsible for writing and distributing the ETER research plan the, that will tell exactly how we will accomplish the goals with the equipment that's being built on site here. Oh, and so do you have to deal with all the member countries all the construction yes. that comes in? Yes, basically? yes, for sure. So uh, for the construction, only at the commissioning and operation phase. So basically they the equipment install is installed by the construction uh, domain, but it's handed over to us to ensure that it operates properly and that we have all the procedures that are necessary to operate it safely uh, with the regulator, but also to ensure that the uh, capabilities that are necessary to do the physics that we want to do exist in the equipment that's delivered. And then uh, also interacting with the members to make sure scientists come and participate in the project, but they're also engaged in the project at this point to uh, do work that we need to understand and refine the plan necessary to accomplish the goals of the project. Wow, that's a very, uh, it's a very big I think, role. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how you break it down in your everyday. Um, 
but that's great because for us at least, uh, for me, we have already been, we have interviewed a lot of people. As we said, this is our sixth episode. And in the past five episodes, we've talked about um, all the different aspects of ITER, from project management to the people. So I think from your side, what I would love to know is somebody who is really overlooking the entire project from the detail to the overview, to the whole perspective, can you really tell us finally what is the importance that ITER is bringing in terms of energy? Why is it that it's really needed? So for me, fusion is the ultimate energy source for human civilization. It already is the ultimate energy source of the universe. Everything that you see was powered by fusion, is powered by fusion. It's the power that runs the stars. The challenge for us is to do it on Earth. Um, why do we want to do this? Uh, there are many reasons, but for me, it, it, human nature says that we will want to advance, we will want to in innovate, we will want to uh, explore, in a sense, explore science, but explore uh, the planet, which we've already done to a large extent, uh, and maybe eventually in space. We need energy to do that. Human history is basically also a history of, of development and use of energy. What we've found, though, is that the sources of energy we're using now impact our local environment. We've known this for over a hundred years with the industrialization, the conversion from human labor to mechanical labor. We saw local pollution. Now we're beginning to see that any kind of energy usage, especially the liberation of CO2 or methane, is infecting the whole planet. The, the uh, Humans are now impacting the energy balance of the planet by our use of energy. Fusion offers a solution to that because it doesn't impact the planet by the generation of the energy. Our byproduct is helium. It's inert. It, go, it, it basically floats up and goes away out of, out of the atmosphere. It's not captured. So, and the fuel is universally distributed. It's water. Uh, so if you have water, it doesn't even have to be drinkable water. If you have water, there is a heavy isotope of hydrogen in all of that water. And we can make the other isotope of hydrogen we need in the fusion plants themselves. So. We eliminate scarcity as an issue for, in terms of uh, geographic distribution of power, but we also reduce our impact on the planet. We can bring human civilization the energy it needs so that people have a suitable standard of living and they don't, uh, they don't make their environment unlivable by trying to make their quality of life better. It's sort of a paradox that we face as, as humans that mm -hmm. oftentimes by trying to make things better in our own environment, we make things worse. Yeah. And so Definitely. to me, fusion is the answer to that. The other sources of energy, we should be using wind, we should be using solar, we should be using those things. But we know already from our personal experience the, the, the concentration of that energy isn't very high. 
uh, you know, the wind doesn't knock you over other than in extreme events. The solar, you don't get burned up when you walk outside. Um, we need more energy density than that to run factories, to run hospitals. Uh, one measure, for example, of um, quality of life is the United Nations Human Growth Index. And I like it because it, it measures life expectancy from birth, educational attainment, and average income of a society by country. If you look at that measure of quality of life versus energy consumption, there's an exponential increase in energy consumption needed to take a simple step in human growth index. What does that mean? We've learned a lot about exponentials with the pandemic in terms of time, but what does it really mean? It says that for every step you take, there's a multiplying factor that comes. And for the energy growth, it's a factor of 2.6 for every 0.1 in this index. Um, there are many large countries on the planet that have uh, a human growth index 0.5.6. The lowest European country has 0.8. If we were to bring the entire world's population up to the lowest European country standard, we would need almost two and a half or three times as much energy generation as we do now. Okay, but as you said, if we've already known that, let's say a hundred years ago, why is it that ah. we are only so doing this now? What we knew a hundred years ago is that there was local pollution effects. Okay. And what they, said, what they had at the time was the fact that you could move things to remote areas. What we're seeing now is the magnitude of energy exactly because it's exponential. Each step we take takes two or three times more energy. It's not just one time more energy. And so it's, it's not just affecting the local ecology, it's affecting now the global ecology for the first time. So yes, we've, we've known these things, there's been a lot of debate over whether we're affecting the planet or not, but at this point, even if it's not us that's affecting it, something's affecting it and we're adding to it. And so it's our obligation to future generations to limit that impact. Definitely. And so uh, fusion for me is not a matter of, of if, but when, I would say. So to follow up my question, <laughs> when? <laughs> uh, well, this is a good question. The, do the joke has always been it's, it's 30 years from now, right? <laughs> uh, so I'm going to tell you it's 30 years from sometime. Uh, there was a very nice study done in the Netherlands about all energy systems and it showed the historical trend uh, between the proof of principle of a certain energy system, like the first time that uh, a critical mass was done in a, a commercial uh, fission reactor, or the first time that uh, photovoltaic sales came to a certain level of uh, efficiency, to the time it takes to go to 1% of the energy market. So that's when you begin to test the economic viability. It takes about 30 years, independent of what technology it was, it took about 30 years to go from that, that first step, uh, real technological viability, to economic viability. And so I can safely predict that fusion 
will not go faster than that. I mean, it's, it's, there will have to be successive generations. The 1% the level of the market represents 100 large fusion plants. So if you think of ITER being that first step uh, that says, okay, yes, we've shown uh, beyond reasonable doubt that it's technically possible, now we need to show that it's economically feasible. Imagine that from one you go to three, from three you go to 10, from 10 you go to 30, from 30 you go to 100. So I just told you about four generations, yes? So I have to build four successive generations. You're not going to go faster than 30 years on this. You can go much slower. Uh, Which I think has been the case. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, because of two things, I think. The unit cost was high and the perceived need was low. I think the perceived need yes. is growing. The unit cost, if you consider the expenditures of governments, isn't that large. It's in a research device, it's large, but in terms of government investments and things, it's not, it's not substantially different from other governmental investment projects. And why I mention governments is because this transition from technical feasibility to economic feasibility, investors don't get their money back directly on the plants themselves because you must fail you have to try things, and some of them will not work. And who's going to take this risk? Uh, companies, because of the large buy-in, probably are not going to take the risk on a unit. They will take risks on contracting and developing the industrialization that you need, but probably governments will have to step in and assume the risk. And so it will be paced by the willingness and the perceived need from governments for their own society's well-being uh, to invest in fusion. So we can go as fast as governments are willing to fund it. Which is why yeah. ITER exists in the exactly. first place. Exactly. Okay. Yes. So it's, we're a consortium of seven members, as you've probably heard in the, the previous episodes. And yes, we represent two-thirds of the world's population, basically, in terms of uh, coming together. Why would they want to come together in this way? Exactly because of what I said. It minimizes their risk while maximizing their return on investment quickly. They get 100% of the information of ITER for, in some cases, a 10% investment. So, and they minimize their exposure to risk, too, in, in terms yeah. of... Uh, uh, answering to their public. So with ITER paving the way basically in terms of research, in terms of actually finding out if the technology is feasible, when would normal people be able to believe that a commercial entity like this would be possible to actually harness fu uh, fusion? Because just mm -hmm. to give you a quick um, background for myself when I see what's happening in the world with their environment uh, I do get afraid especially because I have a young son and I think okay what will happen when he's 20 or 30 years old or 40 or if he has his children the world will not be the way it is and if he needs to turn on the light in the middle of the night but he can't uh, it scares me so that's I think for me 
coming from the outside, I would like to know if fusion is really a possibility for my son or his kids to actually use 50 down like 50 years down the line is it possible is it feasible yeah i believe so we uh, my mother told me long ago though what what i think doesn't change the facts we have to show it <laughs> <laughs> and so that's a but, good <laughs> but but yes i i i firmly believe that that fusion is the answer and and will be the answer i don't see uh scientifically or technically anything that is insurmountable. There are things that need to be optimized, tested. There will need to be some innovation. Uh, but I would say it's optimization, not inventing something that doesn't really exist. Um, the, in the meantime, though, we will have to do other things. Uh, so for your son, uh, we're not going to save the world in 30 years in terms of energy. It's just, as I told you, that the timeline is only to the 1% level. That means that 99% is still coming from somewhere else. And so uh, in that timeline, we will need to fill the gap. And this is why we fully support renewables, uh, cleaning of existing technologies, efficiency improvements, but for the people on the planet who don't have the energy necessary to have a quality of life, <clears throat> it's not really um, a decision for us to say, you need to wait. And they're, they're going to want to advance. And they, It's only human. Exactly. And so we have to find a way to allow them to advance. I mean, it's moral. We're t you know, when the human growth index, what are we talking about? Life expectancy. We're talking about clean water basic uh, inoculations from childhood diseases, education, it means removing child labor from agriculture and mechanization. These things take energy and uh, on a local scale maybe don't impact the planet, but on a global scale when we're talking about three billion people, uh, it's, it does, it will impact the planet when they do use that energy because they will use it. They won't sit idly by, they have the internet, they see how the other half lives and they want to improve their quality of life. And so we have to find a way to make the bridge between where we are now and fusion energy. That doesn't mean we should slow down fusion energy at all. We should do what we can to bring it forward closer to us in time as much as possible. But that won't be the only answer to the problem for your son, uh, for, for my children, for their children even. Uh, it's, it will take time. Well, exactly. I think you're right. Hopefully we can fill the gap while fusion comes to us soon. So to ask you another question, if I may, sure. what are the advances that now with nuclear fusion in general that is growing as an industry, as you spoke about, now people are paying attention to it. Um, now we've heard that there is momentum growing, correct, in the private sector. Um, is that true? And why is that happening now? And does that help, mm. Peter? Yeah, so certainly if you uh, search the internet, you'll see a lot of uh, press releases, especially over the last year in terms of private investment into fusion. Uh, as I spoke before, the, the unit costs seem to be very high. 
uh, so it's a bit surprising that uh, you could imagine that private investors would try to bridge the gap between the proof of principle and the 1% economy I talked about. However, I think people uh, who are investing aren't stupid. They, um, they see that there are other returns on their investment that could be more immediate. So they're investing in technologies, magnets, materials, various things so that could have both spin-off capabilities, but also that level of investment that venture capital can bring or private company investment could bring have the capability of advancing technologies that might make fusion more effective. For example, uh, metals, materials, uh, we need some advances in uh, materials that will withstand the radiation from the fusion reaction at high temperature because high temperature means high efficiency. Same with magnets. If we could make a magic magnet that didn't use uh, cryogenic liquids, liquids near absolute zero for them to work if they worked at room temperature, the efficiency of the plant would immediately have a quantum jump because you eliminate a whole system from uh, the balance of plant that you need to operate a fusion plant. So these type of technological advances, which can start even in university laboratories with proof of principle, could be industrialized with investments from uh, venture capital or uh, public companies. Uh, these things could be enabling diffusion, uh, but in the end, I think the objects are going to be expensive enough and the return on investment far enough away and the risk large enough that the main investment still is going to be through governmental uh, means and not through private means. But I'm happy to be wrong. No, I think you're right. I think for me personally, when I started to see, to read that there's more and more private companies going into fusion, it really made me question why, mm. because we know fusion is not possible now. So what's, what's their interest? Because like you said, it's expensive. You need, it's, mm. it's normal that you need some kind of return on your money. Um, unless you know, you're Jeff Bezos, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But um, I think what you talked about, the immediate benefits and spin-off capabilities, especially mm -hmm. with technologies, makes sense. The other thing you have to remember about venture capitalists is they're making 20 bets so that one pays off very big. <laughs> so, and hopefully Fusion exactly. will be the yes, winning horse. <laughs> yes, if Fusion is, is the big payoff, we all win. Yeah. And so this. Why not? So we welcome this. It it brings excitement. Uh, you know, it 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 brings uh, public awareness because they see uh, that people who have money to invest are thinking about the future. They're thinking about energy specifically, and when they think about energy, they're thinking about fusion. And so, I think this is a win for all of us uh, because it it raises the public attention in a way that Eater has, has raised visibility, but its timescale is not such that it brings sort of the instantaneous excitement. When we have the advances, when we do uh, Q equals 10, we make hundreds of megawatts of fusion power, these will be exciting, but they're not tomorrow. And so this, this uh, 
sort of excitement that's generated by investment now, I think, benefits the whole fusion program in terms of uh, bringing attention, but it also brings a technical capability, perhaps, that is, not, is being overlooked in other investment portfolios. And then hopefully, if with the stamina and the speed of private sectors, if they are able to create some kind of technology that can help vice versa, with the research at ITER, it's also perhaps a win-win? Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Tim, for your mm -hmm. time, for us talking to us today. You're welcome. Finally, in our last episode, where we insightfully explored about this inspirational project that has inspired scientists since the discovery of nuclear fusion and the tokamak in the 1960s, we're extremely happy to conclude this mini-series about ITER and nuclear fusion. In this All About ITER, we learned about its history, the diverse professional work culture, the international school in Provence, the complex technical encounters that challenge and inspire physicists, its unique in-kind contribution system, and the promise of a safer, greener future. It's been a very stimulating series that we hope has helped you understand better what nuclear fusion actually is, and that it can give hope to mankind that, you know what, nuclear fusion energy will happen beyond a reasonable doubt. If you want to listen to all the episodes that we've covered so far, you can do so on the World Radio Paris and ITER websites. <laughs>